Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. As is uh, often the case, it seems, today's sermon is going to be one of those two-part sermons that I preach from time to time, which means that we're going to begin something today. You'll understand why, definitely by the end of the sermon, why it has to be two parts, because almost the entirety of this message is introduction. I've never had this long of an introduction before. I apologize in advance for it, but I hopefully... Uh, I hope that it will help you, or you will understand why by the time we're done, especially as we get into next week. So as always then, that means that your presence here today means that you have to be back next Sunday to hear the end of this, otherwise you will have no clue where this is going, and I pray that by next week you haven't a clue where it's going, because I'm not sure where it's going either. So we'll see by the time it's all done what we end up with. We're going to read Galatians 3, 1 to 14, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please look at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask your blessing on this time. Help us to begin to rightly process these verses that we have in front of us now as Paul begins this argument with the Galatians as to why the law cannot save them pray that we would not be tempted by that same belief, that we would not be drawn away by the lies of this world, but that we will be accepting of truth and yet always discerning, that we will always be wanting to understand ourselves and what we bring to the text as we sit down to study it, but also then what maybe others are bringing to it as well, because in the end, we want to be governed by your word and your word alone. And so I pray that, that we will be faithful to that spirit. Help us Open our eyes to see, give our minds and our hearts understanding of your word here in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever been on the verge of uh, doing or saying something where you weren't 100% certain if the thing you were about to do or say was like the right thing or wise or whatever the case may be, but you were like, oh, well, I need to do it. I feel like, so here we go. I hope this doesn't blow up in my face. You ever had that feeling? Um, I'm not sure that what I'm about to do 
is the good thing or right thing or wise thing, uh, but I feel like I need to do it, so oh well, I hope this doesn't blow up in my face. I'd like to share with you publicly what I have shared with others privately in the past about my own theological and experiential background, and you'll understand more why I say it that way in a moment. Uh, at the outset, let me say that my purpose in doing this is not to make any kind of point at all, really, about any of the things I'm about to share. Really, I just want you to understand where I'm coming from a little bit, because I think it's going to be needed and helpful, and maybe to cause you to have some sympathy. Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, but you'll understand again more what I mean by the time I'm finished, at least just to be uh, understanding and patient with me as we work through all of this. My story begins on Friday, May 10th, 1968. This is how long the story is going to be. Uh, that is the date that my parents got married. Uh, my dad was getting ready to leave. He was in the Marine Corps. He was getting ready to leave for his second tour in Vietnam, and he wanted to get married. And he and my mother had been dating for, I think, five weeks or six weeks at that point. So he says, hey, let's get married. I love you. She goes, I don't love you, but I want to get away from home, so okay. And he goes, that's fine. You'll learn to love me. And he was right. She did. Uh, they ended up being married 33 years. He's been dead 15 now. She's missed him every day since. So if no other time in my uh, father's life that he was right, there was one <laughs> right there. They got married after uh, he came back from Vietnam. Uh, my parents wanted to start a family, but they were completely unable to conceive. It wasn't just that you know, she was having miscarriages and was unable to carry a baby to terms. She couldn't she couldn't conceive at all. And so for nine years, they tried to have children. And for nine years, they failed. And sometime in the summer, I guess, of 1977, my parents decided to go back to church. Why? I have no idea. I don't remember ever even really asking that question before, but they did. And in August, uh, uh, August 14th to be specific, 1977, my parents either got saved or rededicated their lives to the Lord or something. I've heard that story a few different ways, and each time it sounds a little different, so I'm not 100% certain what happened. But I do know that was the date because whatever... Uh, else was going on, nine months, two days later, I was born, all right? Uh, and as such, they looked at me almost as like their reward uh, for having gotten saved or rededicating their life, and really, who can blame them? Um, <laughs> I don't know why both services laughed so hard at that comment. I'm offended. And so now, understandably from their perspective, you know, having gone through that long period of infertility and then uh, having me afterwards, they were now like super committed to being in church, right? They, they kind of viewed again that I was like the little miracle confirmation that this was an important thing in their lives. And, and so we were in church from that point on. The church my parents got saved in was an Assemblies of God church. And for those of you who don't know what that it means, that is a denomination, okay? Sort of like Southern Baptists are a denomination, United Methodists are a denomination, Assemblies of God is a denomination. It's a specific type of church. But I don't ever remember going to the Assemblies of God Church because while I was still very young, my parents switched over to a Pentecostal holiness church. And again, you guys may not be familiar with that term. You probably know the word Pentecostal, but you don't know the word holiness attached to it. Uh, but again, it's just the name of a denomination, and this is what I grew up in. Now, as I've told you before, for the most part, uh, if the doors were open on a Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever the case may be, we were there. And I really cannot remember a time in my life when we were not thoroughly active uh, in our church, in our church family growing up. And so because of that, I have very vivid memories of, of our church and of that period of time in our life. It was the early 80s. And at least amongst the Pentecostal holiness churches there in eastern North Carolina, and I know that's a very specific comment, but that's all I could 
all I can speak to, all I can talk about, because it's what I saw and grew up with. At least amongst those churches there, they were in a clear period of transition. Now, I didn't know that at the time because I was too young to understand what was going on. But looking back on it later, I understood a little bit more. I mean, if you were in a, a church service on a Sunday morning, you're sitting in the auditorium and you would look around the room, you would notice a clear, distinct uh, generational difference between the older and younger generation within the church. It was particularly, particularly evident amongst the women. If the older women, for example, in our church would not wear makeup, would not wear jewelry. Uh, they wore very drab clothing. I'm not talking Amish, but just very, very plain clothing. Would not cut their hair. That was a big thing. They had to wrap it up in a bun. And, and at the time, I didn't understand why that was the case. Um, it wasn't until later, much later on, I learned that there was like a real historical reason for why those particular churches practiced those kinds of things. There were convictions on their part about how they should live. But but what was happening was that was coming to an, an end. That was the end of an era during my childhood because my mother's generation and younger, they weren't doing those same things. They would wear makeup and jewelry and cut their hair, etc. And you know, it's just a good reminder that every movement changes. I don't care what kind of movement you're talking about, religious, political, social, cultural, movements change. And so there's never going to be constant, you know, status quo throughout the life of anything. And I got to see a little bit of that. But, but while some things were changing, other things were staying very much the same. Uh, theologically, not much was changing. For example, uh, they were staying committed to Arminian theology. You may not know much about the history of Pentecostalism, but Pentecostalism as a movement came out of something called the Holiness Movement. And the Holiness Movement was birthed out of Methodism or Wesleyanism. And John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was thoroughly Arminian. So in this point here, they were staying very true to their original heritage. In addition, when it came to their view of a second work of, or experience of grace uh, subsequent or after salvation, uh, they were staying true to that as well. What I mean is, is that generally speaking, they believe that Christians would get saved when we get saved, and then at some point later on, they would experience what they refer to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which would then be evidenced by you speaking in tongues. Now, again, this has its own historical and theological roots, and since I like church history and you're now captive to me, I'm going to share with you just for a moment. Uh, humor me for a few seconds, if you will. I mentioned John Wesley a moment ago. Uh, Wesley grew up in Anglicanism in England, and in, when he's in his late teens, early 20s, he's looking around at the church, and he's like, man... I see all this spiritual dullness, just no life. And, and he saw it in himself, he saw it in others, and so he began really what was just a club to start with, but it came sort of a reform movement within Methodism, pursuing spiritual vitality again. And this eventually became what we know today as Methodism, as that whole denomination. Well, Methodism was obviously greatly used by God in England and America, and all kinds of amazing things happened, particularly during Wesley's lifetime. But fast forward now, you know, after Wesley's death, I don't know how many years, but moving on toward the late 1800s, we'll say, and a new movement arises because there are now young people within Methodism who are looking around going, oh, I see spiritual dullness and lethargy, and, and I don't like that. I want to get back to what Wesley had, and they begin something they called the holiness movement. Now, that name is not just picked out of thin air. If I had to describe the holiness movement to you in a very oversimplified kind of way, um, I would say it like this. First, 
they had taken hold of Wesley's idea of Christian perfectionism. And if you don't know what that is, that was Wesley's view that Christians could experience complete freedom from sin in this lifetime, in effect, okay? Complete sanctification, complete victory. And, and so, you know, it wasn't a process. It was something you could, you could actually arrive at. And they wanted to arrive at that. They wanted to experience that kind of complete sanctification. And so that's their pursuit. However, they had a problem. And that is, is that they kind of needed a way, at least in their own minds, to know when they had achieved that. So how can we know when we have been completely and totally sanctified, when we are finally holy? And they began to look at the act of, or the practice of speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 as being the proof that the Holy Spirit had filled them and that therefore they were now holy, had reached this point of complete sanctification and Again, I am oversimplifying this to a point that's probably not even fair, but just for our time's sake this morning, ta-da, that's where Pentecostalism comes out of, mixing those desires and beliefs in a nutshell. And so, for example, one of the phrases I remember hearing over and over and over again when I was a kid, like every time someone stood up to give a testimony, it always started this way. I'm so thankful that I've been saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Spirit. It always started with those three terms or those three ideas. I myself, as a kid, when I would give a testimony, that's how I started too, because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. Everyone did it, and that's just kind of the way it was, and at least in our churches growing up. But I had no idea that those three things at the beginning of the testimony were, they actually have like roots to them, historical meaning and theological significance. I mean, the first one you get, the idea of being saved, uh, nothing really to add to that one. But when they talked about being sanctified, they were pointing back to that idea of Christian perfectionism, that, that you could reach that moment of, or point of complete and total freedom from sin in this life, though I don't think, and I don't mean this to be rude to any of the people who said it, I don't think many of them understood that. I think they just were saying what they had heard others say before them. So, but that's what it was referring to, and then to be filled with the Holy Spirit was the proof of that sanctification and meant that you had spoken in tongues. Now, for anyone who's curious, just as a quick aside, if you're wondering why in their thinking it had to be speaking in tongues that was the proof of, of having been completely sanctified? I don't know. I can't answer that fully. Uh, as you look through the New Testament, clearly there are lots of spiritual gifts there, and one would think perhaps that any of the gifts could be sufficient uh, proof that one had, had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, personally, I would have probably chosen like giving or something. It would have been much more fun for the church. But anyway, um, they didn't. They, they picked uh, speaking in tongues, probably because it was more spectacular and, and, and clearly visible, also because it's there in Acts chapter 2, and so I'm assuming that was the reason, but I don't know for a fact. Regardless, this is how it was viewed in practice, and so for us, a normal church service uh, would work something like this, primarily Sunday nights I'm referring to, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, rarely on Sunday morning did this happen, but normally the evening services, we'd have a time of singing, kind of like we do here, very upbeat, uh, not like we do here sometimes, but more upbeat than that. Uh, then there would be a sermon. It would be a hellfire and brimstone sermon. If the words hellfire and brimstone have ever meant anything, it meant it there. Uh, then when that was complete, there would be an altar call, which if someone doesn't know what an altar call is, that's when a pastor calls people up to get saved. And this, I never understood why a stage was called an altar because we haven't killed anything on it. But this was the altar, so they'd come up to the altar and you're supposed to, to get saved here. But Quite frankly, it was the same 60 to 70 people every week. We rarely had visitors on a Sunday or Wednesday night in our church. So after 15 minutes of pleading with the same group of people to come up and get saved again and nobody coming, then he would ask for everybody 
to come up and pray for anything. And, and you might think that that, and, and people would. Generally speaking, everybody would at that moment get up and everyone would come to the front. And you, you might think then that, you know, that's the sort of the beginning of the end of the service. That's the end of the beginning of the service was what that was. Because, because then what would happen once everybody was up front was, and again, I'm just telling you what I saw as a kid. This was our normal practice. The pastor would begin, begin to go around and he would begin to lay hands on people and pray for them. And eventually uh, a couple of people, usually women, would, would start speaking in tongues and once that happened, it would begin to spread, and more people would be speaking in tongues. And then next thing you know, people would start running up and down the aisles and around through the jumping off the pews. Um, people would be slain in the spirit, which for those of you who don't know what that means, is somebody, normally the pastor, but somebody would come over and touch them, and they would pass out and fall on the floor. And this would go on for about 45 minutes to an hour and a half. That's why I said it was just the end of the beginning because we were just getting started. That's, that was our normal practice. Now, for some of you, you, you've never seen anything like that. I don't know if you're sheltered or I don't know what you are, but you just have never. You've never, you've never been around that. And so for you, that sounds very weird. But understand that for me as a kid, you know, this was all I knew. I grew up in it. I never saw anything different. That's, I'm like the fish in the fishbowl, right? I'm completely unaware of the water. And so you know, I believed it. I was 100% on board with it. Uh, I, I would defend it if my friends told me it was weird or strange. I mean, I would try to point, go to Scripture and show them they were wrong. Uh, that, that was me. I'd never personally experienced any of the things I witnessed. Uh, there, was, there was one time when I was like 10, 9 or 10 years old, though, where I was wanting to experience it. And so I, I pretended to be slain in the Spirit, and I laid on the floor I'm not joking, this is a true story. I laid on the floor by the air conditioner vent because I liked smelling the Freon smell that came out of the air conditioner. I never inhaled, though. That was, just smelled it. And I'm laying there, and my mother walks over to me and taps me, like, on the leg or something. And she, I look up at her, she goes, what are you doing? And I said, I'm just laying here. And she's like, go back to your seat. So I did. I went back to my seat, and that was it. Apart from that, I never participated in or experienced any of the things that were going on in front of me. But again, I believed in them completely and, and would have 100% identified myself as being Pentecostal at the time. That was until I turned about 15, 16 years old, somewhere around there. Um, <clears throat> you know, like, like should be true of any church, the people that we were closest to, our, our closest family friends, were other people within the church, right? So we would go to their house for dinner, they come to our house for dinner, we go out to eat, we do stuff together, hopefully like you guys experience here at Cornerstone, like this is, this should be normal practice. <clears throat> and the more we did this, though, the more bothered I became by what I was seeing on Sundays and Wednesday nights versus what I was seeing any other day of the week. Uh, because on Sunday, I'd watch these people, they're our friends, our family friends, people we'd known for years. I'd watch them, you know, hooting and hollering and running around and slain in the spirit and all this, all this stuff that I perceived at the time as being extremely spiritual stuff, okay? I'd watch them doing this, but then we'd be at their house and I would hear them um, telling dirty jokes and, and lying and cheating and gossiping and, I mean, just, you imagine it. I heard it and saw it. Now, now look, I wasn't any better. I was doing all the same stuff. 
But the difference in my mind, at least, again, as a teenager who was looking at this, is that I wasn't a hypocrite. I mean, how could you be up there on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights and you're doing all these things and, you know, you're saying the Spirit of God's working in you and, and, and then the rest of the time you are completely different. I mean, night and day. And I, I didn't care for that at all. And uh, it soured me. There's, there is no denying it. It, it's, it turned my stomach. It made me sick watching it to the point that I, I couldn't anymore. And so, you know, when I was 16, most of my friends were going to a free will Baptist church in town that ran the Christian school I went to. And so I asked my parents, hey, can I quit going to the Pentecostal church and start going over to the free will Baptist church? And my parents, and I'm sure it hurt them to do this. And looking back at it now as a father thinking, well, what would I do if my kids came to me and asked me that kind of question? I'm sure it was hard for them, but they let me. And that was the day that I left the Pentecostal church. And I've told you that part a little bit before. I said, it, you know, it wasn't for theological or biblical reasons. It wasn't. I had no issues with it. I still believed it was all true. I still would have identified myself as being Pentecostal at that point. I just couldn't take the hypocrisy that I was seeing in front of me on a regular basis in our particular church. Now, one more part of the story, and I will be done. Fast forward now uh, to my freshman year of college, and, and when I'm finally and truly converted. Now, I told you this story just a few weeks ago, about, I think it was middle of J uh, January. So I won't repeat it again, except to remind you that I went forward in a service when I was nine and made a profession of faith, if you recall uh, me saying this a few weeks back. But here I am now at 18, and through a series of events that, again, I already told you about a few weeks ago, all of that is crumbling around me, and God is finally opening my eyes to the true nature of salvation on a Thursday afternoon in October of 1996. So, so you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, this is the day I'm, I'm born again. And in that sense, like, there's great comfort and, and a number of issues that have been very troubling to me in the weeks prior to that are being resolved. But on the other hand, this begins a multi-year, and I am not exaggerating with that comment, a multi-year wrestling with everything that I had thought or believed before that point. Because if I had been so wrong about my salvation, what else was I wrong about? I mean, I didn't know. And so, you know, I had to start thinking about these things. And it didn't begin purposefully or immediately. In fact, the, the early part of this time in my life was just me devouring Scripture. I mean, I was, to my shame today, I, was, I couldn't get enough of it. I'm reading, reading. and da, da, da. I remember coming home from... Um, from school, from college one semester, and I'm sitting in our living room, and I'm talking to an old high school friend of mine, and I'm just like, I'm dropping it all on. I'm telling like, I'm reading over here, and I see this, and I don't know what this means, and I'm trying to put all these things together, and, and I just go, 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 and he's just listening, and I get done, and he, he stops, and he looks at me. He goes, you're becoming a Calvinist, and I'm like, no, I'm not. What's a Calvinist? Like, I didn't even know. I just knew that was a bad word, and I wasn't that. Whatever that was, not going there. Uh, I remember him leaving and just going back to my room and sitting on a chair in there and just like, am I? Like, what? And like, what's happening to me? And I didn't know. I, I, wasn't, I per wasn't purposely trying to do, to do anything, and without re realizing it, what was happening in my own heart was I was kind of becoming a skeptic about, like, everything I had thought previously. And there's a place where that can be good, and, and there's a place where that can be bad, and I unfortunately went more the bad route with that. I, I, I had come to the place where I felt like I had so blindly accepted so many things without having any idea why, and that I had so easily parroted ideas that I didn't even know if I believed myself, that, that 
I got to this place where if you could not show me in black and white, chapter and verse, why you believed what you believed, I didn't want to hear it from you. Don't even come to me if you can't defend it. Don't even come to me if you can't show me something. And, and quite frankly, I became a real jerk about it. When you mix unbridled skepticism with righteous indignation and youthful immaturity, surprisingly, it doesn't turn out good results, okay? <laughs> Who knew? And, um, you know, if I could go back <clears throat> to that time and slap myself in the face, I would, because I needed it. Because I, I was a jerk to my parents. I was a jerk to my friends. I had my poor wife, future wife at this point, girlfriend in tears because she thought she couldn't possibly understand the Bible anymore. I mean, that's not a joke. That's where I was at. I went, and this isn't, this isn't funny. I'm telling you this. This is like, I'm ashamed of this to this day. I went to a friend of mine house. Her parents, I went to high school with her. Her parents were unbelievers. Her mom was fighting breast cancer. And I called them on one of my breaks home. And I asked, hey, can I come over and meet you? meet with you, and they say, yeah, and I walk in the door, and I sit down, and I say, listen, I'm not going to pray for your cancer anymore, because that's not the most important problem in your life. You need to get saved. You'd be like, well, that was bold. Yeah, it was stupid. How do you think that went over? <laughs> the uh, husband was as nice to me as he could be, but it was not a pleasant experience for me, rightly so. I was a jerk, and I permanently ruined some relationships through that, because I was an idiot. Um... Eventually, I calmed down, grew up a little bit, I think, hope. But, but I'm, I'm a product of all of that. Now, you're a product of a past too, right? You get that. Every one of you in this room, whatever your background is, church, personal life, whatever, you're, you're a product of whatever your past is. And, and I hope this story will help you understand a little bit of why I am what I am today, because for good or bad, and it certainly can be both, I am still a skeptic. I just am. I'm still the kind of person who needs to see it in black and white. Chapter and verse. Why? Why, why, we, why do we think this? Why do we say this? Why do we believe this? I, um, and there has been no biblical or theological subject that I am not willing to question uh, like Boaz before he got married. Ruthlessly. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't funny in the first service either. But that's all right. Um, I'm just not. I've not, I've not. Some people don't like that kind of approach, but I'm not afraid to... Like, go deep with something, go why? Like, question, because there's only one of two outcomes that can come out of that approach, right? Either you go hard into something and you pick it apart to death, and you either come out going, yes, what I believe is true and right and good, it's biblical, praise the Lord, we're there, or I come out going, uh, I was wrong about this or that, and I've been wrong before. Did you just say amen? No? Okay. All right. Uh, I, I'm not afraid to be wrong. I'm not afraid to change, so let's do it if we need to do it. That's one thing. Here's another one for good or bad, and it certainly can be both. Uh, I really personally struggle with how to think through and understand the role of feelings and experience in the Christian life. To this day, I have not gotten past that point. And when I say to you that I have struggled with it, I'm talking, and you're going to say, this is kind of um, seems hypocritical in and of itself. I have struggled to the point of tears. I have wrestled to try to understand what is it, what are we as believers? What should we be feeling? What should our experiences be in the Christian life? And, and, and where I've come to, to land, I'm not saying it's right, I just, I don't trust my feelings, spiritually speaking. I just don't. And I hope this doesn't come across as offensive because I certainly don't mean it to be. I'm just being honest with you all. If I don't trust my own emotions, I don't trust anyone else's either. 
it's not that I think we should be emotionless because I know that's wrong too. I just don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to sort it all out. And if you want to know what has comforted me more than anything else here at this point, just as a quick little aside for free, um, it's that hymn by Edward Mote. We sing it under the title Cornerstone, but its original title was My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And it's that line in the first stanza there that says, I dare not trust the sweetest frame. What does that mean? Well, the word frame in the 1800s was you in the early 1800s was used to refer to one's emotional state. We don't use that word that way anymore. The only thing we even get close to with that now is when we talk about someone's frame of mind. You can hear a little bit of that old meaning in that particular usage. Uh, but outside of that, we don't use that word anymore. So when he's writing that song there in the early 1800s, he's saying, I dare not trust the sweetest emotional state, the sweetest frame, but what does he lean on? Jesus' name. And then in the next stanza, he goes the opposite route. When darkness veils his lovely face, what does he rest on then? God's unchanging grace. And uh, man, <laughs> I can identify with that because one day my frame can be sweet indeed, and the next day I can see nothing but darkness. And it's like, you know, what, what is the unchanging, unmovable rock in that? It's Christ, the solid rock on which I stand because all of the ground, my emotions, everything for me, they are sinking sand. And I cannot tell you how many times I have turned to that song for comfort and exhortation. One more and I'll be done uh, with this crazy long intro. For good or bad, and it has certainly been both, um, there is no single area of theology or practical Christian living that I have wrestled with more and struggled with more and agonized over more than, than that of the Holy Spirit. And now perhaps you can understand why. I'm not saying it's right, wrong. I, I'm just letting you know why I have struggled so much with it. Initially, it was a, it was a rebellion, a, like a reaction against my upbringing. And, and I only saw a very small sliver, so I, I recognized I was, I was dealing with one little group there, but that was... My initial reaction, eventually, I, I hope it became a genuine desire to just try to understand all that the Bible has to say about this subject. And unfortunately for me, I've kind of come to the point where um, I feel like I have more questions than I'm ever going to have certain answers on. Just That's where I'm at, just kind of the quick summary. I've got a few things I feel pretty confident in, uh, but I have a lot of questions that I may not know until I'm in heaven. Uh, and I don't know what to do with that other than just acknowledge it. Now, why did I tell you this crazy long story? As I said at the beginning, it's not to make a point about any of the things I said. I hope you can understand that now. I just wanted you to understand where I am at and where I've come from because that affects me. I can't, I can't pretend that it doesn't affect me because it, it does. It always will. It, just like your past, your upbringing affects you. This is, this is why I am what I am, and I say all of this because the very opening verses of chapter 3 here in Galatians pretty much to a T cover everything that I struggle with. Because, you know, and I don't think it would be fair really for me to, or honest or right or any of those things for me to approach this without you knowing that in advance. And so let's just take a moment, just a moment here at the end to start into the scriptures, and we're going to pick this up next week because I said this was the longest introduction I've ever have, but I just want you to recognize again, last week, we see that Paul is beginning this theological, biblical, historical, logical argument as to why the Old Testament law can't save us, right? And he opens with those two first comments there, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He, he, he doesn't understand why they're, why they're even considering walking away from the grace of Christ to this other gospel. 
And the key word there is the word foolish. I've jokingly used the word moron to translate it, but in reality, it means illogical. This is an illogical decision, Galatians. Why would you even consider doing what you're doing? It doesn't make sense. And so that gives you some understanding of where he's turning right here. He wants to, he wants to address why their decision or their consideration is illogical. And his opening argument, beginning here in verse 1, has to do with nothing other than their personal experience of the Holy Spirit. See, that's like my whole issue and past all wrapped up into one thing. And it begins with an assertion that leads him to a question. The assertion is, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what Paul is referring to here is his own preaching of the cross. And that verb there for publicly portrayed, it normally is used to refer to a formal written document, like a formal, like a report. Like if you would have to tomorrow write a report for your boss that said, here's what happened in this situation, here are the details, here are the numbers, here's the stuff, and you give a whole big report, that's, that's the word. But he's using it to refer to his preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. He's like, look, Galatians, I explained this entire thing to you in detail. Who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, how he did it, what that means, how you have to live, what's changed, all of that. I didn't leave out any of the details. He was publicly portrayed this way. I gave you the full and complete story. Which means then that they can't come back to him and be like, well, I didn't know about it. No, 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 no. You knew. You understood. I made it clear. All of the information there was to know about Jesus Christ crucified. And you want to know how Paul knows that they knew that? That's hard to say, but we worked it out. Uh, well, just, just look at the question that follows for a clue. It's because he knew that they had received the Holy Spirit. And that's where we're going to pause, right there. Because this idea alone is not one we should breeze past, just assuming that everyone understands it the same way. Because whatever the subject is going to be in Scripture, it doesn't matter which one, no one understands everything the same way. We're all affected by these things, our, our, for good or bad, our past experience and understanding sit down at the table with us every time we sit down at the table to study and apply God's words. They just do. And in a sense, folks, there's nothing you can do about that, except to be aware of it, and then to make sure that you commit yourself to the authority of God's word no matter what, which is why, and this is where I'll leave us, why I love what Luke says about Paul and Silas's time uh, in Acts 17. They were on a missionary journey, and they are in the city of Thessalonica, and Paul's normal process or his approach when he goes into a new city is he goes and he finds the Jewish community that's in that city, and he goes to them, and he will meet with them and preach the gospel to them. Okay, that's it. So sure enough, when he goes into Thessalonica, he spends the first three weeks preaching in their synagogue on the Sabbath, explaining. And I love, I love what Paul, excuse me, Luke writes about his time with them there. It says that he would reason with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. I love that he's reasoning with them. He's pointing to scripture. He's, he's, he's trying to help them understand and see these things. Hey, look, look at Isaiah. Look at this. Look at that. The Christ had to suffer. Jesus of Nazareth, he did all of these things. So he's turning to God's word. And well, after three weeks of this, uh, some of the unbelieving Jews had had enough. They start a riot. It's a big problem. Paul and Silas have to leave town. And they do. In the middle of the night, they take off. And they go to another town nearby, the town of Berea. And when they get to Berea, they do the same thing. Go find the Jews, start preaching to them in the synagogue. But I love the response. When 
Luke records it this way in verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And this is probably the perfect response. I was thinking about this this week. It's probably the perfect response to anything you're dealing with. You know, they're not cynical. I have struggled with being cynical. <laughs> they're not cynical. They receive the word with all eagerness. They want to hear. They want to, to listen and learn and reconsider if they need to. They're, they're eager for this, but they're also not gullible. It took Reagan's advice, for those of you who remember Reagan's advice, trust but verify. That was what Reagan said, trust but verify. So they trust, right? Hey, tell us what you have to say. Is that true? Let's look, see. Is that true? Okay. What else do you have to say? To, okay. Is that true? Like trust, verify, trust, verify. This is what they're doing. Constantly going back to God's word to see if the things that Paul says were true. And I was like, man, that has to be the perfect response. It really does. Because some of us struggle on the trust side. Some of us do. We struggle. We struggle. We hear people and they're like, you know, I assume you're wrong until you're proven right. You know, that's kind of some of our approach to life. And that's not good. In fact, that can be quite frankly motivated by pride and arrogance a lot of the time, or it can lead to pride and arrogance, or both. <laughs> it can be motivated by and then lead to more of pride and arrogance because we think we're so smart and so much better than everyone else. And yeah, I don't think that really honors Christ. Some of us struggle on the verifying side. We're way too willing to accept anything and everything that's told to us about scripture, theology, Christian life. And so you listen to any TV preacher, read any heaven tourism book, go watch The Shack, and never once ask a question about it. That maybe or maybe not we should run it through the, the lens of scripture to see if this is right or not. Some of you just like had your weekend plans messed up, sorry. Um, folks, regardless of which one you tend to struggle with more, trusting or verifying, whichever one, let's just commit by God's grace to be eager receivers of truth, but always willing to go back and examine everything, everything I say, everything anyone else says through the lens of Scripture. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we're just getting started in this, and I know that this is definitely not where exactly I wanted to be with this particular message, but I pray that you will use it and make us faithful students, eagerly willing to receive truth, not being cynical and proud and arrogant, but at the same time not being gullible, willing to go back to your word and run every last word of what we say we believe through the lens of Scripture so that we come together around the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing that we're never going to have everything right in this life. I, I, never. I just pray, Lord, that we will be humble, faithful servants, good students, loving Christ, spirit Help us to understand these things and to go out and live them this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.